Hello, and welcome to a Faculty Spotlight series on educational technology and pedagogy at the Yale University Porvoo Center for Teaching and Learning. Let's get started. In Tamar Gindler's seminar, students take a flipped classroom approach, digesting resources and discussing them online prior to meeting in person allowing them to dive deeper into public Plato, ancient wisdom in the digital age. Throughout this conversation, Tamar discusses how setting intentions for critical thinking is crucial within the practices of reflective and student-centered learning. If you don't mind, could you just briefly give me a little blurb about yourself, the course that you currently teach, and a little bit about the students that you support in that course? My name is Tamara Gendler, and I have an appointment primarily in the Department of Philosophy, but I also have appointments in Psychology and Cognitive Science. And the course that I'm teaching this semester is a course called Public Plato Ancient Philosophy for the Digital Age. So the course is cross-listed across a whole range of departments. It's listed in philosophy and psychology and cognitive science, but it's also listed in education studies and in the humanities program because it's a course that is simultaneously about a particular set of texts and about the question of how we best convey the information and ideas in those texts to a broader audience. So the basic structure of the course is that there are a few ancient texts from the Greek and Roman philosophical and literary traditions that we're reading closely. We're really closely reading Plato's Republic, Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, Epictetus's Handbook, and we're reading some selections from Homer's Iliad. So the basis of the course are these core texts, mostly the Plato and Aristotle, and a little bit from Homer and Epictetus. So that's the backbone that holds the course together. What we then do is each week, in addition to reading the ancient text, we look at a contemporary analog of the questions that the text is asking, and then we look at a range of ways of presenting information. So let me give you an example of that that will help make it clear. So for one of the classes, we read an excerpt from the Iliad, which is the story of the Trojan War told by Homer. And in that war, there's a warrior whose name is Achilles and his best friend is killed and he is in a state of unbelievable mourning and he goes what sometimes he, he finds himself in a state that's sometimes called a berserk state and he drags the body of an enemy soldier around in the dust in a way that violates the norms of greek warfare so we read that passage and then we read as the contemporary works a book called Achilles in Vietnam, which is about post-traumatic stress disorder in Vietnamese, in Vietnam veterans and the experience of warfare and how it causes challenges to the moral order. And we read some work by Stanley Milgram, who did the famous Milgram experiments. So 
we were taking an ancient text, the Achilles story from the Iliad. We looked at two contemporary discussions of it, one of which was anthropology, the other of which was empirical psychology. And then we looked at ways in which that information can be presented. So we looked at videos of Milgram and we listened to tapes of Milgram and we watched various kinds of PowerPoint presentations about it. We read popular summaries of it and scholarly summaries of it. So that's an example of what we do each week. I think that was a very interesting take on how you compare those two things. I think a lot of times, especially with philosophy, we do not consider the psychological part mm -hmm. of philosophy. It's just like, this is what my soul feels and this is what this, but there's so much that the brain has to do with the soul. And I really appreciate the comparative nature of that. In your course, do you have opportunities for the students to find paired pieces like that as well? Or is this something that you've kind of curated on your own over the years? So the course is actually meant to teach them how to do this much more generally. So the idea of the course is, right, one week we might read Plato's Republic and his description of parts of the soul. And then we might read Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow, and some stuff on basically how you appeal to different parts of the soul. And then the students might make TikToks on Plato on parts of the soul. So that's an example of I curate the content. But the assignment for several of the weeks of the course is for them to design a week of the course. That is, what are two classes which they're taking, which are bringing analogous perspectives? What would they assign if they were developing a week of the course? What would they assign by way of readings? So I absolutely want the course to teach what it is to look at a text, to see what its deep ideas are, and to think about how different intellectual modalities might bring you to the same insight. So we read a philosophy book and a cognitive science paper, but you could read a literary work and look at something in economics, or you could read a historical work and see what kind of insights you would get on that from art history. Awesome. So with those skills, with them developing the imaginary courses or the connection of the courses, are there any additional skills that you try to manifest in them, not just in pertains to the curriculum or the course itself, but like lifelong skills that you try to develop? So the course is very much about always engaging deeply first order and then thinking about the meta questions. So one of the topics that we actually cover in the course as a philosophical and psychological question is the question of procrastination. So we literally read Aristotle, who has a little piece on weakness of the will in the Nicomachean Ethics. And then we read some empirical psychological work on procrastination. A bunch of the students actually did a video project where they went and interviewed faculty around the campus to think about what their strategies for procrastination were. And so in that regard, it was very practical. But the course tries to go much deeper than that. And we try to think about 
to the extent that there are strategies that you use with regard to procrastination, which of them involve internal adjustments to how it is that you represent various activities, which of them involve external constraints that you put on yourselves, which of them involve the creation of habits, which of them involve embedding yourself in a structured environment that might reinforce your inclination towards a particular kind of behavior. And then we reflect on what it is to be reflecting about that. So one of the things that I say repeatedly is there's an incredibly interesting philosophical literature on games. And what games allow you to do is to take on in pretense a particular goal and then pursue that goal under the pretense. And there's a way in which the structures of the educational enterprise are game-like. We put in assignments and deadlines as a way of motivating ourselves to act in particular ways. So for the final project of the course, the students have a final due date, which is May 3rd for it. But all of the intermediate deadlines are deadlines that they set for themselves in a contract with me, having read a literature on why it is that it's useful to do that. So they're practicing out how do you do a long-term project with intermediate deadlines? And that gives them the opportunity to gain a particular kind of skill. I like the relativity of the game structure. I think I know a lot about when you do play a game, for instance, like Mario, mm -hmm. there's a lot of small mm -hmm. little tasks that you do and maybe even some opportunities you have on the side to do tasks. So the students who did the interviews and were able to create that video project but then you have the boss which is like that final piece yeah but every skill that you've learned throughout the way you earn all of these little trinkets to help defeat the boss which is that final project exactly right and you and one of the things that we do in the class is sometimes we engage in close reading so one of the most fun activities is literally we put up two sentences from either plato or aristotle and we spend at least a half hour going through those two sentences. And so that's a skill of close read. But another assignment that we have for the class is you read a contemporary psychology article, and then you go to Google Scholar and you identify at least five articles that have cited it. And then for each of those articles, you fan out to articles that cited them. And then you look at one of the assignments is you look at how the information is presented in the original article, in the article it cites, that cites it, and in the article that cites that. And that's another Mario skill that you're learning. And the idea is along the way, there's a whole bunch of Mario skills. One of them we do is just a really simple exercise in how to read graphs in psychology articles and how to understand just what's written on each axis, because some of them are psychology majors, but a lot of them are philosophy majors and vice versa. We learn how to use a critical edition of a book, how to make pagination references across different editions of the same volume. All of these are Mario skills. Awesome. Awesome. There's a lot of connectivity between concepts and different structures and different parts of your curriculum. How do you connect students' identities within your course? Is there something that you elicit in them at the beginning or continue throughout the structure? Or... So the course is very much a course that is simultaneously 
emotional and intellectual simultaneously and communal. So Plato's Republic, which is the book that we start with, says the best way to understand the individual is to look at the community that surrounds them. And the best way to understand a community is to understand the individual. So there's lots and lots of things that are about specifics of the students. It, one of the things that we do is throughout the entire semester, each of them has a particular project which they've taken on, which is called their procrastination project, which is something they're trying to fix. In one of the cases, it's about exercise. In one of the cases, it's about sleep. In one of the cases, it's about attending office hours. In one of them, it's about trying to engage in mindfulness. These are very individual, personal activities. But one of the things we do is we've created a structure of group accountability. And so at each class, we're simultaneously there in a very, very intellectual framework. We're reading Plato and Aristotle. And we're coming in and saying, yeah, I managed to put my phone across the room before I went to bed last night. Awesome. It's very obvious that the course encompasses concepts of critical thinking um, or encourages it. But if you see a time period, or especially at the beginning of the course, if they've never taken a course like this where things optimize critical thinking or imagine them to not just sit and get as some courses do, especially in a lecture, a seminar style kind of lecture, um, how do you encourage dialogue within the course? So we set up a bunch of things that are routines, which make contributing to class low stakes. So the class has a very particular structure. I always have a slide up with what the structure of the class that day is going to be. And we first talk about sort of where we are in the course curriculum. And then the second thing we do is I put up a slide with a list of the readings that we've done for that week. And we just have a really quick, it's called Reading Round Robin. And everybody talks about one sentence that they found interesting in one of the readings. And it just means that everybody's established that their voice is in the room in a really low stakes, non-evaluative moment of the class. So that somebody will say, I really like the following sentence from Aristotle, or I really like the following graph. And in addition, what each of those let them do is to figure out how to direct people's attention to a particular place on a page. So some are reading electronically and some are not. And so it's also an exercise in communication, because one of the things we're trying to do is to teach how do you help other people know what is going on in your head? So sometimes they'll say it's the third line down on the second page. But anyway, we go around the room and everybody does that speaking. So that's a sort of low stakes engagement. Then usually the next part, I will explain something relatively complicated. And then we very often do a close reading where I put a text up on the slide and we just go around reading aloud a sentence of it. Again, low stakes way to get everybody to contribute. Awesome. And then I know there were some instances where we've kind of briefly talked about video and different tools that you're using. Do you have any tools that you use to enhance content absorption or participation or different things like that? So I've been really enjoying using a program called VoiceThread. Mm -hmm. So it's roughly a flipped class in the sense that I have a series of lectures that I gave in the 2012 version of this course, and they serve as one of the texts of the class. But the way I have them set up is as voice threads. So our class meets on Wednesday. By Sunday night, 
they all have to have watched the video from the 2012 course and VoiceThread lets them make real-time comments on the video. So all of them make comments along the way and they can do really specific things like, I didn't think the color of this slide was good because we're talking about how presentation affects content or it can be, this reminds me of so-and-so is this bit of Plato reminds me of this essay that we read by Daniel Batson or whatever they might say, or it can be a criticism or a comment. So they all have done that in on Sunday night. And then on Tuesday night before the class meets on Wednesday, they all go and look at each other's comments on the voice thread and then they can make comments on those comments. Okay. So that's one of the ways that we prepare in advance. So it's kind of like a double because you these have been done through lecture capture, I'm assuming, or they some kind of- So my lectures were captured through the Open Yale Course Initiative okay. Lecture Capture, actually in 2011. Those are posted on Open Yale Courses, but I take them off of Open Yale Courses and, and put, put them into VoiceThread. The students make the comments on VoiceThread, which they can do in one of several ways. Mm -hmm. Either they can type in a response, or they can make an audio response, or they can make a video response. And all of these are interspersed and they all make at least five comments on the one hour lecture. That's on Sunday nights. And then on Tuesday nights, they all look at each other's comments on the voice thread. Okay, so I'm hearing several different ways of engagement in the course, which is really motivating because we talk a lot, especially in the Porvoo Center about intrinsic motivation and getting students engaged, especially in like a post-COVID era of teaching where we're not virtual and you're not trying to get someone to tap on Zoom and chat and respond. Um, but in terms of engagement in a course like yours, how would you encourage other instructors to start if they're struggling with engagement in their course? So I start by assuming that the material that I have to teach is interesting and engaging and exciting if I can help students see why that is. And so I make part of what I'm teaching be the question, what is it that makes material interesting and engaging and exciting? And in some sense, because what it is to participate in the course is to think about what it is to participate in a course, I find that that produces a kind of self-reflection on the part of the students. The other thing is that I'm very, very careful about how I assign readings. So for every reading I assign, I give out what's called a reading guide, which starts with a brief biography of the person that we're reading so that they have a sense of this person as a human being. And then I have a list of the terms and concepts that I want them to get out of the reading because these are very dense and I want it not to be overwhelming. So I always have between five and 10 terms and concepts that are the key terms and concepts. And then I have reading questions for every one of the readings. And the idea is I want people to feel like this degree of understanding is what we're looking for. And so sometimes they're literally just explication questions. And that signals to the students, if you understood why paragraph two came after paragraph one, you've mastered something that's worth mastering. And I think it helps students to feel engaged when they feel like the tasks that are assigned to them are tractable rather than overwhelming. 
I guess a final question would be, how do you continue communication with your students? Meaning like asking questions, do they ask you things via Zoom or on email or through Canvas, the, the course site that you have? What advice would you give to students to continue communication or encourage communication with their instructors? I have office hours on Thursdays where I just sit in my office for a bunch of hours and almost every student comes almost every week to office hours and sometimes they're individual meetings and sometimes we just sit around and talk about things. I am a big believer in boundaries and in work-life balance so I don't answer student emails on weekends or after about eight o'clock at night and they know that and I know that and it works very well for communications. So I have office hours in person, we email, we have a discussion board on Canvas where people put up various kinds of materials. The class often gathers informally. They, they without me, went on a trip and they all went skydiving, which was just a chance for them to hang out with one another. But I would say if I'm looking to give advice to others, I would say make it clear what you consider to be intrusive and what not. So I don't mind if the students email me and then I email them back. I ask them only to text me if it's an emergency, like they're going to be late to class because of an injury, and then I might reorder something in a class. And then we use the resources of Canvas for anything we want to make public. And then I have a pretty wide open set of office hours because I find that if you just have short office hours, it's hard for students to come by, whereas basically what I have is an open house midday on Thursdays. And that produces just a kind of coming, going, relaxed interaction. Awesome. There's a lot of insightfulness, especially with the comparative. A lot of times, I think with cross-listed courses, we forget that you can connect. I think that there's an assumption that, okay, philosophy and psychology can go together, but you're really making it a point to always remind those students that these are how these things connect and then putting the work on them to invest in their own knowledge and create something like this as well. I will say we have things color-coded because one of the things that the course takes seriously is researching cognitive science about mm -hmm. what eases cognitive load. And so the parts of the course that are just straight content are always coded in red on the slides. And that would be like a discussion of Aristotle or today we did some a paper by Robert Nozick on principles, or mm -hmm. we might read a particular article. So that's all red. Everything in yellow is about the logistics of the course, which is about when papers are due or what assignments look like. And then everything in green is actually meta questions about the relations between various disciplines or the relations between form and content. So what in what modality is that expressed? And one of the things we talked about in class was how this color coding is itself an instance of the third phenomenon, which is how is it that we ease cognitive load by using various facts about human psychology to represent what category something falls into. And so I find students start saying things like, oh, I'm making a green point right now because I want to connect this psychology to this philosophy. So even just getting labels for the various kinds of conversations people have is sometimes useful. Yeah, for I think that answers a lot of the questions that people have about just getting started in the organization. And we think of organization in a way, this is what my syllabus is. These are what the assignments are. And 
color coordinating is not just a means for organizing your thoughts, but it's also a means for accessibility and for people who need organization in that type of structure. So again, thank you for participating and helping and giving your insight on your course. If you'd enjoyed this conversation and would like to learn more about our Faculty Spotlight series, please check out our website for more information at campus.yale.edu. Thank you.